Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Since taking office, the Trump administration has undertaken unprecedented steps to sharply reduce both the number of refugees who are resettled in the United States and also the number of people who can claim asylum. This has included significantly lowering what is known as the ceiling on refugee admissions to the smallest number ever and placing onerous restrictions on exactly who can be admitted as a refugee. Meanwhile, the administration is implementing several policies of dubious legality that would effectively make it impossible for people entering the southern U.S. border to claim asylum. In today's episode, one of the world's leading experts on refugee and asylum policies is on the line to discuss the mechanics of what the Trump administration is doing. Eric Schwartz is the president of Refugees International and also served as Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees, and Migration in the Obama administration. He has deep experience working on humanitarian and refugee issues, which he summons in our conversation to help put this administration's assault on refugees and asylum seekers in context. We also discuss the very real global implications of the fact that the United States cannot be meaningfully relied on to advocate for the rights of refugees and asylum seekers around the world. You know, if you follow the news as closely as I do, you know that almost every single day, it seems there is a new iteration of the Trump administration's assault on refugees and asylum seekers. This conversation helps you understand the broader context around which these policies are designed and implemented, or in some cases, blocked by courts. A quick note before we start the bonus episode I've posted this week is my great conversation with former U.S. Secretary of Defense William Perry, and that conversation includes one of the greatest anecdotes in the history of all the interviews I've ever done about what William Perry experienced during the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's pretty harrowing. You can unlock that bonus episode plus over a dozen others. I actually think we're up to about 20 by now by going to patreon.com slash global dispatches. You'll also unlock access to my Dawn's Digest global news clips service, which sends you a roundup hand curated by me and my partner of the top news from around the world, often from regions that aren't as well covered in the mainstream press that lands in your inbox every single morning. And it's yours complimentary with a premium subscription to the podcast. Follow the links in the description field of this podcast episode or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to sign up for a premium subscription. Thank you. And now here is my conversation with Eric Schwartz of Refugees International. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? 
Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, there are two ways that um, refugees, uh, people who are uh, who have a well-founded fear of persecution based on race, religion, nationality, uh, uh, political opinion, or membership in a social group. There are, there are two ways that the United States has historically, over the past many decades, um, uh, uh, enabled uh, the, the entry of people in that situation. Uh, the first has been through our refugee admissions program, which is a program where uh, we um, look around the world and identify uh, refugees who are outside their countries of origin, um, but have not been firmly resettled in the countries where they're, uh, they happen to be residing. And, um, and each year, the United States determines how many of those people will uh, come into the United States. And that ultimately is a presidential determination. And by the end of the uh, Obama administration, the president had made a commitment to resettle about 110,000 of those people each year. That's a discretionary act. That's an act that the United States decides to take. And, you know, there are upwards of 25 million refugees in the world. So nobody has any illusion that all of the refugees who are outside their countries of origin will be resettled in third countries. But this is an important program that provides uh, um, you know, a, a, a resettlement opportunity for the most vulnerable uh, refugees. Right? So that's one program, the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. The second way that the United States historically has uh, resettled refugees is through our asylum process, where people either um, you know are are at our borders or people um, you know come into the United States on visitors' visas or through other means, and essentially apply to U.S. authorities for protection, saying that they are, um, you know, they are in fear of persecution, and then they go through an adjudication process to determine whether indeed they have a well-founded fear of persecution. And, and you know, and, and, and as I say, in the, in the final year of the Obama administration, uh, the United States, through its refugee admissions program, uh, the president uh, made a determination that we would resettle in 2017. Um, uh, um, uh, in, in, I'm sorry, in, in the 2016, 2017 year, but fiscal year, 2017, uh, 110,000, uh, refugees and, um, and, um, and, um, and, you know, and with the advent of the Trump administration, mm-hmm. all of that changed dramatically. Yeah. So, so that's actually what I wanted to, to, to discuss with you along those two tracks, the resettlement sure. of refugees and the upending of asylum policy. So first on, on the resettling of, of refugees, I mean, we saw early in the administration, uh, the Trump administration taking that number 110,000 and reducing it dramatically. And, you know, we're speaking now, there seem to be rumors that they'll reduce the number even more dramatically to, you know, a number approaching zero. Um, could you sort of describe what that trajectory has been? 
Well, sure. Um, in the first year of the Trump administration, um, they uh, the administration reduced the number effectively to just over 50,000. It's complicated how they got to that number, uh, that got to that level, because it was, again, just over 50,000, but it was essentially actions of President Trump uh, to dramatically uh, reduce the overall refugee numbers. Um, in the second year, so that, that, that was fiscal year uh, 2017. Um, so for fiscal year 2018, which is October 2017 through September of 2018, I believe the number, if my recollection uh, serves, was about 45,000. But they ended up resettling the U.S. government. That was the ceiling yeah, that that's the, the ceiling, came yeah. up with. And it, 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 it was a result, as I understand, sort of, of last-minute lobbying, for example, by the former Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, uh, because many in the White House wanted a much lower number, but they came up with 45,000. They ended up resettling about half that number, maybe even a little less. Um, and uh, so between 20 and 25,000 uh, in um, fiscal year 18. And the number for fiscal year 19, uh, the number we're, 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 we're currently in, was is 30,000. And, um, and in fact, through uh, the efforts of very dedicated civil servants and others, it looks like we're actually going to get close to that, if not get to that 30,000 uh, level for uh, 2019. But but so that's been the trajectory. But the White House uh, in, in general, and uh, Stephen Miller, the, the, the senior advisor in the White House on these issues for President Trump, it's been clear that 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 his predilection his uh, would be to have the program really uh, uh, grind to a, a complete halt, and and that's a real tragedy for a lot of different reasons. When, when will we know what the next fiscal year's ceiling will be? It's sort of like the election year ceiling. Well, it's hard to say exactly, but um, you know uh, the the fiscal year begins on uh, October first, so. Um, you would you would hope and expect that um, the uh, number would um, uh, would be revealed um, before October first, but just when before October first uh, is hard to say. Traditionally, the administration comes up with a, a a number. I wouldn't even call it a proposal because the president ultimately is the decider on this. Mm -hmm. But the administration comes up with a uh, with a. Um, a, uh, a proposal or, or a proposed number, uh, pre a presidential number, which is then uh, briefed to Capitol Hill traditionally, um, and where it, 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 in, a, in a consultation process. And after that consultation process, the administration reveals the president's final numbers. And, and in theory, that should all happen well in advance of October 1st. Uh, in some years, the whole process has not ended until a couple of few days into October. Uh, but I expect that we'll have uh, some clarity on these issues probably uh, in the month uh, in the month of September, although I'm not certain of that. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to like predict what it is, but surely, sure. I mean, you've seen those rumors that they're going to try to cut it down to like 1,000 or some up, like obsessively, aggressively yeah. low number. Yeah. Well, you heard me sigh. Um, yeah. and, and, and that, that, that side was uh, a genuine side because, um, first of all, you have to understand, I, I think it's important to take a step back and rather than sort of simply politically prognosticate, uh, give you a sense of why this program is really important. I mean, um, you, everyone understands that third country refugee resettlement will not be the answer for the majority of the world's refugees, but it's a critical, uh, component of 
uh, of an overall effort to provide refugees with solutions. Some refugees get to go home after the conditions that, that motivated their flight are no more, right? And um, other refugees can flee to, second, to, to, to other countries where they'll be locally integrated. But for some uh, modest number of refugees, the only alternative is going to be resettlement in a third country. It's an important but limited program. The United States traditionally has been a leader in this effort. And, um, and, uh, and, and, and that leadership has been critically important in encouraging other countries to do it. It's also been critically important in helping to establish and sustain American leadership on international humanitarian issues. And the other thing that, that people don't really appreciate is the overall number, even at 110,000 during the Obama administration at the last year's ceiling. That's a, that's a very, very small percentage of overall annual immigration to the United States. The numbers are extremely modest, but this is a very important program. And refugees in the United States have done extremely well, extraordinarily well, extraordinarily well. Think about the Vietnamese American community. Think about the Soviet Jews who, are, who emigrated to the United States. I mean, it's, it's, it is a successful program. So why is it at risk? What, what's going on in the, in the Trump administration? And unfortunately, Fortunately, uh, the administration and the president himself has chosen to politicize this issue, and you know, and to and to and to use it as part of an overall uh, sort of anti-immigrant, anti-inclusion message. And so, I do have very serious concerns that, uh, given the kind of politics that um, that we are we are witnessing, I do have serious concerns that the final number will be a very low one. It makes me very, very nervous, and it makes me very, very sad. It's heartbreaking. So uh, in addition to this ever-decreasing number of resettled refugees that the Trump administration is allowing in the country, there's also this unrelenting assault on uh, U.S. asylum policy, U.S. asylum law. Um, the most recent iteration, you know, appears to be sort of transparently illegal under U.S. law, um, which would essentially ban people crossing the southern U.S. border from applying for for asylum in the first place. Can, can you just sort of describe what that policy is? And um, I guess we don't really know how it's being implemented just yet. Because well, they're beginning much, to. Yeah. They're beginning to implement it, and um, I think you have to understand this policy in the context of the president's, uh, you know, essentially stated desire to basically end asylum as uh, and end asylum uh, um, uh, in the United States. Essentially, he has articulated a desire, you know, base uh, not to have people. Uh, applying for asylum, uh, and he's been very clear about it, and um, pretty uh, unambiguous about it. And this latest measure, uh, reflected in an interim rule, essentially says to anyone uh, 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 who is seeking asylum at our um, at the U.S. Uh, southern border, is that they they cannot apply for asylum uh, if uh, they have uh, transited another country after they fled their own country uh, that is um, essentially a signatory uh, to the refugee convention and, and protocol. Um, uh, in other words, a country that has said, we will consider asylum claims. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem, <laughs> the, pro the, the obvious problem uh, with this is, number one, 
Um, it, it, I do believe it is in violation of U.S. law on asylum because U.S. law on asylum uh, provides that um, people who are uh, uh, who show up at our borders should have their claims uh, considered, and um, uh, and all the, one of the exceptions is if the United States enters an agreement with another country. Uh, which the asylum seeker may have passed through, in which that country uh, accepts uh, the obligation to hear the asylum seeker's claim, um, and, and and that's an exception to our asylum law. But there, but and the, the only it's worth pointing out that the only country with whom the United States has that kind of agreement is Canada, right? Is Canada, and the 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 obvious assumption for such agreements, the obvious assumption for such agreements, is that that the country with which you're reaching such an agreement is a safe place, right? So the Trump administration has been pressing the government of Guatemala uh, for, for months, I believe, pressing really hard f- for that government to agree to, to, become a, un, uh, to, to reach a safe third country agreement with the United States. But, th- but it is a, it, it is a, the notion of Guatemala as a safe country is, is, is kind of ridiculous. Number one, the government, the country has uh, very little capacity to to process asylum seekers, and number two, um, the country is not a safe place for Central Americans to be returned to. Right. So when the, at the very the very same day that the Trump that the government of Guatemala indicated to the Trump administration that they weren't quite ready to sign this agreement was the was the day in which the Trump administration issued this uh, or announced this interim rule. It was issued the next day, which essentially said, you know, we don't need a safe third country agreement. It doesn't matter. If you, as an asylum seeker from Salvador, Honduras, um, if you pass through on the way to the United States, a country that has signed and ratified the Refugee Convention and Protocol, then you're not going to be eligible for asylum. So it doesn't matter whether or not Guatemala has signed a safe third yeah. country so agreement. So basically, it, yeah. So this yep. this 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 um, new policy, this new restrictive asylum policy, was basically yep. done in retribution uh, to Guatemala for, or not perhaps not in retribution to Guatemala, but but in response to Guatemala not signing the safe third country agreement. Well, I, I have a different view on that. I, I I you know you can't. I think that interim rule was in the works for a mm. long time, and mm-hmm. I think um, you know the folks in the White House are, are very are very smart and very clever. I think Stephen Miller is very smart and very clever, and I'm sure they uh, that I'm sure they were not certain that they were going to be able to reach a, th- a safe third country agreement with Guatemala. So they figured uh, if we have this interim rule as well, it, it creates another obstacle for asylum seekers because it basically says if you're a Salvadoran or a Honduran. And you're and you come to the border of the United States. Inevitably, you will have passed through Guatemala, and uh, even, whether or not Guatemala has agreed to be a safe third country, the fact that you've transited Guatemala, which is you know signed and ratified the Refugee Convention and Protocol, means you can't apply for asylum uh, in the United States. Um, you will be denied asylum, and 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 that is you know and that's a pretty draconian uh, measure. It's a very draconian measure. It reflects policy of an administration that really wants to end asylum on our southern border and it also and and it will create this is the most important point this is the most important point it will create enormous suffering on the parts of 
thousands of Central Americans who will be denied asylum and and um, and will be confronted with the with the with the reality of returning to a place where they um, where they uh, would fear uh, uh, persecution. So. You know, we're seeing these twin assaults on refugee resettlement, on asylum. But we didn't even talk about revoking temporary protective status as TPS, as it's called, for uh, a number of people. I think, including recently Venezuelans, right, who are, who are yep. in the United States. So this is another way. Or not, not granting TPS for or, Venezuelans. Exactly, that mm-hmm. was a decision that was recently made. Um, and and, and uh, just to be clear, that's um, a provision that would enable uh, people who are in a country that's under some sort of threat or violence to s- overstay their visas, basically, without. Well, it essentially yeah. says, you know, if 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 you're in the United States, and part of my language, but all hell breaks loose in in um, in your country, um, if, if a temporary a, a temporary protected status designation would say that every person who arrived in the United States after a certain date. Um, may remain here for the time being until conditions permit mm-hmm. their return. So, so we're seeing all these assaults uh, against asylum policy, against refugee resettlement here in in the United States. Uh, you know, I, I know you have a global perspective on, on a lot of these issues, yeah. and I'm curious to learn from you if you are seeing um, the kind of anti-immigrant, or perhaps not anti-immigrant, anti-asylum seeker, anti-refugee rhetoric that's being used in the United States, a country that has historically been a leader on these issues, um, it's being sort of exported abroad, being used either in the, the rhetoric itself or sometimes even in policy. If you're seeing any sort of global reverberations of rhetoric or policies that emerge in the United States. Um, yes, uh, the answer is yes, and I think this happens in a variety of ways. Um, first of all, um, given the commitment uh, to refugee protection for which uh, United States officials felt responsible, um, the U.S. U.S. high-level U.S. voices on refugee protection have always been very important. So, you know, when you know when you see for example european governments returning migrants to libya where they were subjected to incarceration in awful conditions right mm-hmm. in in any other administration democratic or republican uh, us officials would be engaged in efforts uh, to press uh, european governments uh, on those basic rights issues uh, i am aware of no evidence that this administration uh, has been doing that, or has urged uh, European governments to change policies with respect to return uh, to Libya. Um, you know, similarly, yeah, it, 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 with respect to um, you know any number of policies that governments have been implementing, where U.S. diplomats at very senior levels, and in some cases even the U.S. president, you know, would be weighing in. Though that voice is largely absent, that U.S. voice on international humanitarian and refugee protection issues is largely absent. And I think governments, um, you know, and, and I think governments have, I know that governments have noticed. In addition, I think uh, the policies that we see, a lot of the anti-immigrant and anti-refugee policies we see from Australia uh, to Europe uh, to even parts of the global south, I think are emboldened by um, the the practices and the policies of the Trump administration. 
I think um, it is difficult to overestimate the impact of the changed U.S. policies on on these issues. Think about the final years, and I don't want to be I don't want to be partisan about this, but think about the final years of the Obama administration, where President Obama, coming forward with this commitment to 110,000 refugees, uh, re, re, the resettlement of 110,000 refugees, um, leveraged that uh, leveraged that effort to secure much greater commitments to refugee resettlement from many other governments around the world. But if you, if you look now today at worldwide refugee resettlement numbers and, and commitments, those numbers have plummeted um, uh, you know, since um, uh, the end of the prior administration. Can, so there's I, no question. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, well can, can I ask, so you, I mean, you were like the one doing the leveraging, right, in your, in your role as Assistant Secretary of State. So can you just kind of take me inside the room or, or cite a specific example of where you were able to, you know, leverage the Obama administration's commitment to resettle 110,000 refugees to, to another country? Well, I, I, I was um, Assistant Secretary through October of 2011, and the, the particular mm-hmm. commitments I'm talking to you about were made um, in in probably 2015. Mm-hmm. So it would be difficult, if not impossible, for me to tell you what it was like inside the room. But I can tell you, you know, what the the exercise of humanitarian diplomacy looks like, and what it means is you, as a senior U.S. official, with the backing and the endorsement of the president of the United States, uh, the the Secretary of State, and in some cases the president of the United States, you can engage with um, um, with foreign officials even at the most senior levels, um, uh, even at the even at the head of state level, which I had the opportunity to do, um, and you can you can make arguments for refugee protection and 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 a willingness not to forcibly return people um and you can say that your own government you know doesn't not only doesn't agree with such practices but doesn't doesn't not only not only doesn't condone such practices but doesn't participate in such practices that for example was the argument i made uh, to the president of the dominican republic in urging that they have policies of tolerance uh and respect for the rights of um of of Haitians and um you're not you're you're not able to make those kinds of arguments and press that kind of a case if you don't have the not only don't have the high level support of your administration but are explicitly prevented from doing so by your administration i guess finally in your observation of media coverage of what's happening here in the united states and around the world in terms of refugee resettlement and asylum po- policies. Is there anything you think sort of missing, any nuance that you think is, is missing in these conversations as you see them? Well, I, you know, I would answer that, I guess, in two ways. Um, and I want to make one more point before we finish. Because yeah. You made me think of something else. Go, go, fin- finish, finish I, all I, your points. I, I, yeah. I, I, oh, thank you. <laughs> you made me think of two things. First, um, I, I think that, um, I think that, Despite the stories you read from time to time, um, you don't. I, I don't know that Americans really um, fully appreciate the depth of the uh, suffering, of the uh, the anguish uh, uh, that the policies of this administration uh, um, has cre- uh, have created uh, for the lives of 
of, of tens of thousands of people uh, from uh, the Northern Triangle. And, um, but, uh, but, but conversely, I also think that um, to a too great an extent, Americans need to hear more stories about the resilience, the strength, um, the, the, the fortitude of refugees and refugee families who are prepared to give up everything to seek a better life in circumstances where they are fleeing the most horrendous kinds of abuses. I think more of those personal stories of hope, of resilience, and of, of, of positive contributions to their new, to the country to which they're arriving, in which they're arriving, I think more of those stories need to be told. I'd also make one other point, which I think is really important, which is that, you know, um, there, there, there are, there were, on, the, on these issues, there have been no halcyon days. Um, the, the notion, uh, you know, the consensus on behalf of uh, policies of, uh, of, of welcome the stranger, of inclusion, of, of, of honoring diversity, um, that consensus in the United States, at best, has always been a very fragile one. It's always been a very fragile one. And, um, and whether it was in the 19th century, uh, the know-nothing-ism, uh, which vilified uh, Irish immigrants, or, or in the 20, early part of the 20th century, the rants of Father Coughlin, who had tens of millions of followers, uh, anti-Semitic rants and, and, um, and chauvinistic rants. Um, we, we have had, you know, we have had challenging experiences on these issues. What is different? What is different is, you know, our, our, our president is articulating and, and, and promoting some of these, these terrible perspectives. And that makes the challenge all the more greater, all, 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 all that much greater for those who are who, who care about uh, these issues. But I think it also underscores our obligation to persevere and to and to continue to try to push back on policies that really are um, are uh, so in contrast to you know the, the 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 you know what America should really stand for. Uh, well, Eric, thank you so much for your time. This is very helpful. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Eric. That was very helpful. And before I let you go, I just want to nudge, cajole, implore you to support the show. Help me keep doing what I am doing. Earn rewards for yourself in the process by becoming a premium subscriber. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. Bye.